It was October of 1944, and 40-year-old Alvin W. Kramer watched as several workers carefully brought over another heavy wooden crate and set it down on the floor before him. He bent down to inspect the stained paper label on the side. It read, Library of Congress, Harned Collection, Number One. It had been a long time coming, but the contents were finally home. Three years earlier, the items had quickly been packed up and sent to a few secret, secure locations under fear of an attack on Washington, D.C. The country had entered World War II, and anything could happen. However, the threat had passed, and Kramer was now supervising the return of the collection to the library. It was a tedious job, but as keeper of the collections, Kramer wouldn't delegate the task to anyone else. As his assistants opened the lid of the crate, Kramer took a look at the packing slip. The box contained 24 notebooks that had belonged to famed poet Walt Whitman. These were handwritten by Whitman himself and contained a treasure trove of information about his life and art. Staff members began pulling objects out of the crate, and Kramer checked them off one by one as they were handed over to conservators. When everything had been removed, one of his assistants motioned for workers to bring the next box. Wait a minute, that can't be everything, Kramer said, exasperated. His checklist indicated 10 more notebooks should have been inside the crate. His staff just stared at him in incomprehension. The container was definitely empty. The rest of Whitman's notebooks were gone. Welcome to Gone, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find all episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Gone for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today we will be searching for Walt Whitman's missing notebooks. One of America's most celebrated 19th century poets, Whitman wrote down many of his ideas and thoughts in a series of personal journals. During World War II, 10 of them mysteriously vanished from a sealed crate. Widely regarded as the father of free verse, Walt Whitman was innovative and controversial. In an era when poetry generally dealt with spirituality and allegory, Whitman's verses, such as his poem, Song to Myself, exalted the human body and nature. His most important work, Leaves of Grass, was a collection of poems with a distinctly American flavor. In 1855, in the preface to the first edition, Whitman wrote, The genius of the United States is not best or most in its executives or legislatures, but in the common people. The proof of a poet is that his country absorbs him as affectionately as he absorbed it. Early in his adulthood, 
Whitman began carrying small notebooks in his pocket. He used them to record everything from names and addresses to thoughts, ideas, and scraps of free verse. He is believed to have produced more than a hundred of them during his lifetime. Following his death at age 72, many of Whitman's manuscripts and notebooks came into the possession of one of his literary executors, a man named Thomas Biggs Harned. Inside one of the notebooks was a small cardboard butterfly that had been depicted in a famous photograph of Whitman. Harned gave his collection to the Library of Congress in 1918, but during World War II, 10 of the notebooks disappeared without a trace. After exploring Whitman's life and legacy, we'll examine the notebooks themselves, how they came to be lost, and how four of them were unexpectedly rediscovered in the 1990s. Walt Whitman was born into a nation in crisis. Earlier that year, 1819, the country had fallen into its first major economic recession, one that would last for the next two years. And in February, the House of Representatives had passed a controversial piece of legislation insisting that slavery be abolished in the territory of Missouri. The intense arguments that followed became the first milestone in the lead-up to the Civil War. Born on Long Island, Whitman was the second of nine children. In 1823, when he was four years old, the family settled in Brooklyn, New York. But his father wasn't very good with money, and the family never stayed in one place for too long. In fact, they lived in four different homes during their first four years in Brooklyn. Despite the frequent moving, Whitman had a happy upbringing. One of the most memorable events of his childhood was the visit of the Marquis de Lafayette to New York City. A Frenchman, Lafayette was widely regarded as an American hero from the Revolutionary War. He'd not only encouraged French involvement in the war, but had served as a general in the U.S. Rebel Army and had been wounded in battle. In 1824, President James Monroe invited Lafayette to tour America in honor of the upcoming 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. He visited all 24 states and was received with adoration by frenzied crowds. General Lafayette's grand tour arrived in New York in July of 1825. During the July 4th celebrations, he stopped to lay the cornerstone of a public library that was under construction in Brooklyn. Schoolchildren had turned out in large numbers for the ceremony, including six-year-old Walt Whitman. However, big piles of dirt from the excavation prevented Whitman and a number of other children from seeing the proceedings. When several men in the crowd began to help them move into a better spot, Lafayette decided to join in. The Frenchman came up to young Whitman, lifted him up, and gave him a kiss before setting him back down where he could better see the festivities. It was a moment that Whitman would remember for the rest of his life. Whitman's formal education concluded in 1830 when he was just 11 years old. By then, he'd already shown an interest and talent for writing, so he went to work in a law office as an assistant and errand boy. The office had a large collection of books, and Whitman immersed himself in them. He later wrote, 
For a time, I now reveled in reading of all kinds. It was an amazing treat. As a teenager, he apprenticed with several newspapers and published his first works of poetry in the New York Mirror. His family moved back to Long Island in 1833, and Whitman joined them two years later. Then, after a brief stint as a teacher, the 19-year-old Whitman started his own newspaper. Called The Long Islander, it's still in print today, serving as a community newspaper for Whitman's hometown of Huntington. But Whitman's association with the paper didn't last long. He was a gifted writer and editor, but running a business was a different story. Less than a year after he started it, his financial backers pulled their funding and forced him to sell it. Despite the setback, Whitman was still determined to make a living in the publishing industry. For the next decade, he worked as an editor for more than 10 different newspapers in New York and Long Island. These jobs allowed him to publish his fiction, poetry, and editorials. Though he would later be famous and controversial for his nonconformist lifestyle, he was far more traditional in his youth. His first book was a temperance novel, published in 1842 when Whitman was 23. The temperance movement had begun in earnest a few years earlier and pushed the idea that alcohol was dangerous and immoral. Whitman had decided from a young age that he didn't like the taste of liquor, and he'd seen the effects it could have on people in the taverns and brothels of New York City. So when approached by the publisher of The New York World about writing a short novel about the dangers of alcohol, Whitman quickly agreed. Called Franklin Evans, the book was about a promising young man whose life and career are derailed by alcoholism. Whitman would later distance himself from the book, saying he'd only written it for the money. He even went so far as to claim that he was under the influence of alcohol himself when he wrote it. Over the next few years, Whitman published another novel and continued to work in the newspaper industry. He also began to write down random thoughts and ideas throughout the day on leather-bound notebooks he carried with him. He hoped to eventually turn the scrap notebooks into pieces he could publish. By 1848, he was 29 and working for the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. As the newspaper's editor-in-chief, he used editorials to champion a number of causes that were important to him, including fair wages, opposition to the death penalty, and improved schools. But it was his perspective on limiting the spread of slavery that ultimately got him into hot water. 1848 was an election year, and the current Democratic president, James K. Polk, was retiring. The paper was a supporter of the Democratic Party, but members of the party were increasingly at odds with one another over slavery. Earlier that year, the United States had won a large portion of territory from Mexico following the Mexican-American War. As a result, the expansion of slavery into the new territory dominated that year's Democratic Convention. Southerners almost universally supported expansion, but many Northern Democrats wanted the territory to be free from slavery in order to benefit small farmers. They'd be at an economic disadvantage competing against plantations. So when the Democratic Party nominated a candidate who supported the expansion of slavery, many Northerners walked out of the convention. They became known as barn burners. They were so fed up, 
They met later and formed a new party called the Free Soil Party. Whitman supported the barn burners and joined the movement, writing editorials to help spread their message. Though many anti-slavery advocates were members, the movement wasn't built on moral opposition to slavery. Instead, the party argued that slavery's expansion to the West would be bad for the economy. Whitman didn't just write editorials. He served as a delegate to the Free Soil Party's convention that year. In doing so, he helped to nominate former president Martin Van Buren to run on the party's ticket. Because of the split among the Democrats, the Whig Party candidate, Zachary Taylor, won the election. But for Whitman, that wasn't the only bad news. The owner of the Daily Eagle had thrown in his lot with the Democratic candidate, and he was angry that Whitman had supported the barn burners. As a result, Whitman lost his job. But he didn't go quietly. According to one report, a fight broke out in the newspaper office and Whitman kicked an unnamed prominent politician down a flight of stairs. However, this incident didn't hurt his job prospects. For the next few years, Whitman continued to pen editorials in newspapers and even dabbled in carpentry and house building. Despite being in his 30s, he still lived at home with his parents and younger siblings. He wasn't married, so he had no reason to move out. During this time, he continued to write daily musings in his notebooks. As he grew older, Whitman's perspectives on slavery continued to grow more radical, at least by the standards of the time. By the early 1850s, Whitman had moved beyond any concerns about the economic problems with slavery. Instead, he had begun to embrace a firmer stance grounded in the moral problems. In 1850, there were rumblings that southern states were threatening to secede from the Union. But it was avoided when the U.S. Congress passed a series of bills known as the Compromise of 1850. Among other things, it permitted slavery to expand to much of the new Western territory. Even more controversially, it enacted a fugitive slave law that required Northerners to assist slave owners in capturing runaways. Anti-slavery crusaders were outraged. Whitman published an editorial that year condemning prominent New England Senator Daniel Webster for voting for the bill. He wrote, from the house of thy friends comes the death stab. Doe faces, crawlers, lice of humanity, a dollar dearer to them than Christ's blessing. Though writing for newspapers would remain an important part of Whitman's life and work, he increasingly felt that he wanted to do something more meaningful, more creative. Up through the early 1850s, most of Whitman's published works had been editorials, novels, or short stories. But now he began to see a different path for himself, one that would ultimately make him one of the most famous writers in America. Coming up, we'll explore Whitman's rise from a local newspaper man to a world-renowned poet. Now, back to the story. By the early 1850s, Walt Whitman had published numerous short stories and articles, as well as two short novels, but he wanted something more out of his writing career. He began to view poetry as his true calling. He'd been inspired by an 1844 essay by the writer and philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson. In that essay, Emerson complained that America had yet to produce a great poet 
who could embody the unique American spirit in his verses. He later wrote, at the age of 31 to 33, a desire that had been flitting through my previous life had steadily advanced to the front, defined itself, and finally dominated everything else. Whitman believed he was up to Emerson's challenge. He began a series of loosely connected poems that he envisioned as a kind of American epic. But producing it was no easy matter. He later spoke of the difficulties he had in writing the poems, feeling pressure from within to get the words out on paper. He said, they're too personal, too emotional, launched from the fires of myself. I have dashed at the greater drama going on within myself and every human being. Many of the ideas he incorporated into his poetry had originated in the small leather journals he carried with him everywhere he went. When an idea would strike him, he'd stop and write it down. Later, he'd go back and edit what he'd written, crossing things out, noting ideas in the margins, and sometimes even ripping pages out entirely. In 1855, at the age of 36, he published his first collection of poetry. Called Leaves of Grass, it was a slim volume containing just 12 poems and covering about 95 pages. One of those poems, Song of Myself, took up almost half the book. The collection was the culmination of many years of hard work. In the process, he'd gone through countless notebooks, working out his style and developing his own unique voice. Writing almost exclusively in free verse, his technique was groundbreaking during an era when poetry was expected to rhyme. For Whitman, Leaves of Grass was more than just words on a page. It was meant to be experienced, and the setting was as important as the words. For that reason, the size of the book was critical. He stated, I have long teased my brain with visions of a handsome little book for the pocket. That would tend to induce people to take me along with them and read me in the open air. The title was also important, though on the surface it seems to be a reference to nature. It's actually an ironic comment taken from publishing industry terminology. A leaf was a page in a book, and grass was jargon for writing that wasn't worth much. Living up to the name, the first edition of the book didn't sell well. In fact, Whitman ended up giving most of the copies away to friends. But when he sent a copy to Ralph Waldo Emerson, whose essay had helped inspire it, Emerson stated, I find it the most extraordinary piece of wit and wisdom America has yet contributed. I greet you at the beginning of a great career. Whitman was so delighted, he not only decided to revise and expand the book, he included Emerson's glowing praise in the opening pages of the second edition. Published the following year in 1856, it included an additional 20 poems. Yet despite his enthusiasm, the second edition didn't make much of a stir with the general public either. But thanks to Emerson's involvement, it did catch the attention of literary critics, and their response was overwhelmingly negative. The United States in the mid-19th century was puritanical and moralistic. This was an era when many husbands and wives slept in separate beds, and sex was never talked about openly. Discussion of the human body and its various functions was thoroughly off-limits. 
Whitman broke all of those rules, and people were scandalized. In a poem titled, I Sing the Body Electric, Whitman described both male and female bodies using imagery that was shocking to 19th century sensibilities. It also depicts the act of reproduction, including vivid and lurid images of sex. Critics were mortified. One reviewer described it as preposterous and disgusting and stated, one cannot leave it about for chance readers and would be sorry to know that any woman had looked into it past the title page. And unfortunately, the controversy did little to increase book sales. Whitman later called the first two editions a dreadful failure. But Whitman wasn't one for growing discouraged. He believed in himself and his art, and he was convinced that it would only be a matter of time before his critics and the reading public came around. So he continued to write every day in his notebooks, drafting new ideas and editing old poems. Anytime he finished a notebook, he would carefully put it away in his desk or on a shelf for easy reference later. Meanwhile, he supported himself by continuing to write for newspapers. In 1858, he wrote a series of 13 essays titled Manly Health and Training. Published under a pseudonym in the New York Atlas, it was a healthy living guide for men. Among other things, it encouraged men to wear beards, take daily cold baths, sunbathe nude, and follow a diet of primarily meat. He argued that men should wear comfortable footwear, recommending the athletic shoes worn by baseball players. Many of these ideas had first been jotted down and fleshed out in his notebooks as he made observations in his daily life. Following this success, Whitman returned to Leaves of Grass. He published a third edition in 1860. With almost 150 new poems, his formerly pocket-sized volume was now well over 400 pages. This time, a new factor hindered book sales, the Civil War. By the time the southern states seceded, Whitman had fully turned to morally oppose slavery. At 41 years old, Whitman was too old to be drafted into battle, but he believed in the cause and wanted to do whatever he could to help. So he moved to Washington, D.C. and began volunteering as a nurse in a military hospital. He used his notebooks to record information about the patients he was treating, including the nature of their wounds, and even notes about what kind of food they liked to eat. Whitman was still struggling financially, and several friends tried to help him find a job in the government. However, the task was difficult. His poems were still infamous and were regarded as being incredibly vulgar for the time. Because of this, he was rejected for work in the Department of the Treasury. When Treasury Secretary Salmon P. Chase read Whitman's work, he was so disgusted that he refused to hire the man. As the Civil War came to a close in the spring of 1865, Whitman finally found a job with the Bureau of Indian Affairs. While working as a clerk, he began drafting poems in his notebook about the war. That fall, he published a collection of these Civil War poems. The collection proved to be timely and popular, and Whitman quickly published a second volume with 18 more entries. One of those was a tribute to the recently assassinated Abraham Lincoln, O Captain, My Captain. 
the poem vividly depicts the emotional tug-of-war felt by many Americans during 1865. The war had been won, but Lincoln had been murdered just a few days later. The poem contrasts the joy of a ship arriving safely in port against the tragedy that the captain had not survived the journey. One of the rare poems he wrote in rhyming verse, O Captain, My Captain, would quickly become his most famous. It was the only poem ever included in anthologies during Whitman's lifetime. The popularity and uncontroversial nature of the Civil War poems helped increase Whitman's fame, but it wasn't enough to overcome the scandalous reputation of his earlier poems. Just a few months after starting with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the new Secretary of the Interior fired him after coming across a copy of Leaves of Grass. But by 1865, Whitman had powerful friends on his side. William O'Connor was the editor of the popular magazine, The Saturday Evening Post. He not only arranged for Whitman to get a job as a clerk with the Attorney General's office, but he also wrote a glowing biography of Whitman for his magazine. Its title, The Good Gray Poet, would become a nickname for Whitman. Whitman remained a clerk at the Attorney General's office until 1872, when he was finally able to quit working and live solely off what he earned writing. During that time, he published the fourth and fifth editions of Leaves of Grass in 1867 and 1871. He also had a collection of poetry published for the first time in Europe, where it became a bestseller. His fame began to spread. But then, in early 1873, 53-year-old Whitman suffered a stroke that left him partially paralyzed. In need of some support, he decided to move to Camden, New Jersey, to live with his brother. Despite his physical impairment, Whitman continued to write prolifically and again expanded and republished Leaves of Grass in 1881. By now, he was a sought-after lecturer and spent many hours drafting speeches in his small notebooks. On the lecture circuit, his concern for his public image began to grow. Having grown up during the advent of photography, Whitman understood how important pictures could be for his career. During an era when most people weren't photographed more than once or twice in their lifetimes, he had his picture taken multiple times a year. New editions of his poetry and ads for his lectures always included updated images. In the early 1880s, Whitman had a picture taken that depicted him with his trademark heavy gray beard posed with a butterfly on his finger. He later said it was his favorite picture. It appeared in newspapers around the country and in several editions of his books. It became one of his most famous portraits. When asked whether the butterfly was real, he insisted it was, saying he'd always had a knack for attracting birds and insects. In fact, it was made of cardboard. A few years after the famous photo was taken, Whitman moved out of his brother's house and bought his own home. At the age of 65, it was the first and only home he ever owned. He spent the last few years of his life continuing to jot ideas in his notebooks and doing a final revision to his most famous work. Published in 1892, the sixth and final edition of Leaves of Grass included 381 poems and an essay. Upon its publication, Whitman wrote, It is at last complete. 
after 33 years of hackling at it, all times and moods of my life, fair weather and foul, all parts of the land, and peace and war, young and old. It was his masterwork, a chronicle of his life as America's poet. He died at the age of 72 on March 26, 1892, just a few months after the last edition of Leaves of Grass was published. When he died, Whitman left a wealth of notebooks, journals, papers, manuscripts, letters, and other items in his home. He once told a visitor, this is not so much of a mess as it looks. The disorder is more suspected than real. But the people who had to sift through the chaos left behind would have disagreed. Before his death, Whitman had chosen three literary executors from among his friends to collect and preserve what he left behind. Many documents and journals were eventually lost or found their way into private collections never to be seen again. But in 1918, one of the executors, an attorney named Thomas Biggs Harned, decided to give his portion of the collection to the Library of Congress. His donation contained more than 3,000 items, including books, correspondence, written manuscripts, newspaper clippings, and the cardboard butterfly Whitman had once insisted was real. Harned wanted the Library of Congress to have the items because of Whitman's decade-long association with D.C. The collection was turned over to the library in the fall of 1917. Not included in that initial donation were a group of leather-bound notebooks that Whitman had carried with him everywhere he went. At the time, they were being used by a writer for research on a forthcoming biography. It wasn't until late 1918 that the library finally came into possession of the 24 personal notebooks. Librarians immediately went to work cataloging and preserving them. For the next 20 years, the collection served as a repository of information for historians, scholars, and Whitman biographers. It provided a window into Whitman's thoughts and experiences and gave researchers a glimpse of how he developed his poetic voice. Several books were published in the 1920s and 30s that used the Harned collection as a primary source, including a two-volume work on Whitman's uncollected poetry and prose. But then, in the 1940s, the unimaginable happened. Ten of the notebooks vanished. Coming up, we'll explore the disappearance of Whitman's notebooks. After his death in 1892, Poet Walt Whitman's papers and correspondence were collected and distributed among his three literary executors. In 1917, one of them, Thomas Biggs Harned, turned his portion over to the Library of Congress. For the next 25 years, the collection remained safely in the possession of the library. But then, disaster struck. In December of 1941, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. The United States soon joined the side of the Allies in the war against Germany and Japan. Fears of attacks immediately spread on the U.S. mainland. Could what happened at Pearl Harbor happen in California, New York, or worse, Washington, D.C.? With anti-aircraft guns being installed on buildings around the city, administrators in the Library of Congress believed the threat was too great. 
The library was full of valuable and irreplaceable historical documents and artifacts. It was decided that the most important items would be moved from Washington into the interior of the United States, where they would be safe from coastal bombing raids. It would be a significant undertaking. The man in charge of it all was Alvin W. Kramer. As keeper of the collections at the library, he supervised the packing and transfer of the items to various secure locations around the country. These included Fort Knox and the Virginia Military Institute. Each container had an unbroken seal attached to it, ensuring its security. Among the many valuable items sent away were original copies of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, a handwritten draft of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and manuscripts by Thomas Jefferson. Also included was the Harnett collection of Walt Whitman's papers and notebooks. Shipped by train and delivered by truck, the collection ended up on the upper floor of the library at Denison University in Granville, Ohio. There, the containers were guarded day and night by a rotation of military police. By the fall of 1944, it had been decided that U.S. coastal areas were no longer at risk of being bombed. So after two years in storage, the collections were returned to the Library of Congress to be unpacked and recatalogued. A stream of trucks began arriving daily at the library. Kramer and his staff were responsible for going through it all. It was a monumental task. When a small crate containing Whitman's 24 notebooks and cardboard butterfly was opened, there were only 14 notebooks and no butterfly. Kramer and his staff were horrified. The seals on the crate were intact, meaning it hadn't been opened since it had been packed up two years earlier. Therefore, the items couldn't have been stolen while in transfer or storage, but the Library of Congress had been cleared out in 1942. So where were they? Library staff began an intensive search for the notebooks. Thousands of boxes and crates had been packed up with the items from the library. The last shipment alone included almost 5,000 containers, enough to fill 26 freight cars. Surely the notebooks had simply been put in the wrong box. But an exhaustive, months-long search turned up nothing. So library staff began a systematic search of the library itself. They ransacked storage rooms, offices, and attics. Every room in the palatial complex was inspected. But the notebooks were nowhere to be found. Finally, after acknowledging that the items were truly missing, the library notified the FBI. They had followed every trail, explored every possibility. But now they had to face the unthinkable. The notebooks had never been packed up and removed from the Library of Congress. So they disappeared before the evacuation and probably been stolen. Working that theory, law enforcement began the tedious process of attempting to track the collection through the previous two decades. Since 1925, the items had been freely accessible by anyone who cared to go through them. And unfortunately, Library of Congress policy didn't include regular inventory checks of the collection, so there was no way to say for certain when it had last been intact. A careful analysis of piece-by-piece -piece user records indicated that the missing notebooks had been present 
at least as late as April of 1941. That was less than a year before the collection was packed up and shipped to Ohio. The loss of Whitman's notebook was a disaster for the Library of Congress and the literary community. An invaluable resource for scholars and literary enthusiasts, the notebooks were also important antiquities in their own right. They represented a tangible part of American history, something irreplaceable. In 1954, the library, in conjunction with the FBI, sent out a notice to auction houses, rare book dealers, and collectors, announcing the theft and describing the missing items. No complete transcriptions of the notebooks had ever been done, but several authors had done partial transcriptions, and photocopies had been made of at least some pages from every notebook. But the notice produced no leads. The case eventually went cold, and the missing notebooks were forgotten by everyone but a few dedicated archivists and Whitman enthusiasts. Several decades passed. Then, on January 25, 1995, Alice L. Burney of the Manuscript Division of the Library of Congress received a phone call. She spoke to Selby Kiffer, who worked for the Book and Manuscript Department of the esteemed Sotheby's Auction House in New York City. He was looking for information on a notebook that had been featured in a 1921 book of Whitman's unpublished writings. He wanted to know if the notebook had been a temporary loan to the library or a permanent gift. He also wanted to find out if it was still in the library's possession. Bernie couldn't believe what she was hearing. The notebook he was asking about was clearly one of the missing items from the Harned collection. Tense with excitement, Bernie sent him a copy of the 1954 pamphlet prepared by the library and the FBI. Two days later, on January 27th, the vice president of Sotheby's, David Redden, called Bernie back. He announced that they had not one, but four of the missing Whitman notebooks, plus the cardboard butterfly. On February 24th, library officials, accompanied by several FBI agents, traveled to New York to take possession of the items. The return of the notebooks was reported across the country. Library of Congress official David Wigdor stated, the notebooks are the most important material we could have hoped to recover of anything known in American literature. The four notebooks that were recovered in 1995 contain a treasure trove of unique information on Whitman's early life. Among them is the so-called earliest notebook, dated to 1847, almost a decade before Leaves of Grass was published. It includes an early form of verses that would eventually make it into one of Whitman's signature poems, Song of Myself. Another notebook tracks Whitman's time in Washington, D.C. in 1863 as a nurse for Civil War soldiers. In yet another, Whitman mentions his failure to get a job at the Treasury Department because Secretary Salmon P. Chase disapproved of his poetry. He states, A fellow employee thought very much of Leaves of Grass, but he said that Mr. Chase, seeing the book on the center table, said, how is it possible you could have this nasty book here? The FBI immediately began investigating. 
It was a miracle to have the notebooks back, but everyone was wondering where they had been for the past 40 years. And more importantly, if this could lead them to the six notebooks still missing. The man who first brought the notebooks and the butterfly to Sotheby's was an attorney who had been going through his dead father's estate. He realized the notebooks were antique, but didn't know what they were. So he'd asked Sotheby's to appraise them. Neither the man's name nor his father's name has ever been released publicly. The man told Sotheby's that his father had received the books as a gift from a friend 30 years earlier. The name of the friend is known by the FBI, but it also has never been revealed. In fact, the FBI has never provided any details of their investigation to the public, probably because the case is still ongoing. What seems clear, however, is that no one was ever charged or arrested in connection with the return of the notebooks in the 1990s. No information has ever come to light about how the notebooks were originally stolen. Despite meticulous searches of the library complex itself, there was always the possibility that the items had somehow been misplaced or accidentally destroyed. But the recovery in the 1990s proved once and for all that the notebooks had been stolen. Speculation on the thief's identity has tended to focus on an inside job. The theft might have even occurred when library staff were packing the items in 1942. Though Alvin Kramer had supervised the packing, he couldn't have been there every moment for each container. A staffer might easily have falsified a packing slip intending to sell his prize to the highest bidder on the black market. After the four notebooks were returned in 1995, Herbert Harned, a Yale professor and son of the original donor, said that the stolen items were the most important pieces in the collection. To have known this, the thief must have been an expert on Whitman, lending credence to the idea that it might have been someone who worked at the Library of Congress. Among the six notebooks still missing is one where Whitman discusses the infamous fugitive slave law of 1850. Another is a journal with notes from his time as a nurse and a notebook containing a photograph of an unknown woman. Walt Whitman had been well regarded during his life, but had also been the subject of intense controversy and scrutiny. But in the years and decades following his death, his fame and importance in American history grew. He came to be viewed as one of the great literary voices of the 19th century, his verses defining what it meant to be an American. Literary critic Harold Bloom insisted that Whitman was every American's imaginative father and mother. Art historian and friend of Whitman, Mary Berenson, stated, you cannot really understand America without Walt Whitman. His importance in history made his personal papers and manuscripts a vital resource for historians and scholars. But like many artifacts and historical documents, they became a target for art thieves hoping to make a quick buck. The six notebooks that are still missing might be sitting in a dusty attic somewhere, their owner having no idea of their importance. Or they might be in a private collection poured over and lovingly maintained by a collector with a dark secret. In 2009, the chief of the manuscript division of the Library of Congress, James Hudson, sent a letter to archivists and book dealers around the country. In it, 
He provided information on the case and descriptions of the still-missing notebooks, hoping to produce new tips in the case. But as with similar efforts in 1954, the letter failed to generate any leads. To this day, the location of Walt Whitman's six remaining notebooks remains a mystery. Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. For more information on Walt Whitman's life, amongst the many sources we used, we found Walt Whitman by Justin Kaplan extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Gone, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Gone on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Scott Stronach with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Gone was written by Scott Christmas, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.